Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, September the 8th, 2023. It is currently 12.59 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, in our last episode, in our ongoing series on understanding law and gospel and trying to formulate the proper distinction between law and gospel, the episode kind of took a a weird turn. It really wasn't what I was hoping. I was hoping to talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel, but it really kind of just fell into a, a discussion about false teaching and the responsibility of the teacher. Hey, as a teacher, don't teach false teaching. You'll be held accountable for that. Don't do so, all right? And it can damage the lives of your hearers, all right? Amen. And then it talked about the responsibility of the hearer, of the listener, of you, that you have a responsibility not to be deceived or to follow along false, you know, false teaching. You're, you're not to be, you're not to be confused by false teaching. In fact, you as the listener, you're supposed to be judging the teaching and determining if it's false or if it's true. Now, when I say it that way, most of you will just shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, of course, the fault, the teacher shouldn't teach false teaching. As, as a listener, I have a responsibility to be able to judge that teaching. And, it, and you probably don't give it much thought, but I try to point out in the last episode all of the ramifications of that concept and all of the problems and the spiritual chaos that ensues and that it leads to never-ending arguing and fighting and debating and church splits. Because I know in theory what we like to say is, look, it's simple. You listen to teaching and you judge it according to God's word. But everyone thinks they're using God's word. Everyone thinks their doctrine is based off God's word. And if the, if the pastor who goes to seminary, Bible college, Bible institutes, gets degrees, diplomas, certificates, he, he spends his life studying and trying to gain as much education as possible. What is the point of all of that education? What is the point of all of that work is if the minute he stands behind the pulpit, Anyone without any formal education, without even doing much study, can just immediately say, you're wrong because I have the right to judge you because I've read my Bible and you don't agree with the Bible. So you're wrong. You're just, you're just wrong. And they can try to split the church. They can try to get the pastor fired. They can just leave and go start another church. I mean, they're, they're like, it just leads to complete chaos. So when I raise those questions, obviously some of you are not fans of that, but it has to be, it, everyone has to just see the system that we're in. Like in a roundabout way, if you think about church history, once Luther and once many of those in the Reformation said, look, the church doesn't have the authority. We're not going to, we're not bound by that authority. The scriptures stand above the church. The church doesn't stand above the scriptures. Again, all of that sounds so good. It sounds so wonderful. But the reality is we just replaced one pope with now everyone is their own pope. 
Everyone is their own magisterial authority. Everyone is telling everyone that they're wrong. And then, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Well, I have the Bible on my side. Well, I have the Bible on my side. Well, you should read the Bible. No, you should read the Bible. And what's funny is not only did that happen in our study of law and gospel, then I get a comment on YouTube about modalism, Sabellianism, and Trinitarianism. And once again, just demonstrate that they're telling me I need to read my Bible. And then, and it's just... That whole thing is maddening to me. So it's not what I really wanted to talk about in our discussion about law and gospel, but the audio that we're using, that's where they took it. So just to remind you, we've been working on this series on law and gospel since October of 2022. We're fast approaching a year in this study. We made it very far. We kind of went back. We're kind of doing a little bit of refresher, reminder, reinforcing these concepts. We're utilizing the book, God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Um, we are, we've made it to thesis number, what is it, seven, I think we're on right now. Or is it, uh, I, yeah, yeah, uh, thesis, thesis number seven. Thesis number seven. Uh, so we've started that. We're utilizing for kind of this redo, kind of, you know, trying to reinforce and remind and kind of get us back to where we are. Uh, we're utilizing the radio program Issues ETC, which serves also as a podcast. It's a Lutheran radio program. They're doing their own series on law and gospel. So we are utilizing their little segments in between commercials um, for each episode. And they're the ones who took the last, our last episode and made it all about, you know, hey, you need to judge false teaching, even though, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we can get into that whole discussion again. I'm not going to go there, but hopefully this segment, they will advance it. Now, the, the thesis that we're looking at is thesis number seven. Again, there's 25 theses in the book, God's Knowing, God's Yes, a proper distinction between law and gospel. And this thesis reads like this. In the third place, the word of God is not rightly divided. When the gospel is preached first and then the law, sanctification first and then justification, faith first and then repentance, good works first and then grace. So they started talking about this order. We had some, they didn't get very far. They started mentioning it. And so now they, they, they went to a commercial break. They're coming back in from the commercial break. We're going to pick up the discussion there. We'll just, just this one small seg section, and then we'll wrap up this episode and we'll continue until we, we uh, get to where we stopped off before, which was about thesis number 11 or 12. And once we kind of get caught back up, then we'll take it up. We'll still will utilize some of Issues ETC, um, I, but please go subscribe to their podcast. You can listen to everything they have to say about law and gospel and, uh, and, and all the other things that they talk about. But uh, we'll, we'll just continue. Like, I don't know how you, some people, someone may ask, when is this series going to be over? Who knows? Because in some ways we should never stop talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel. Because for the majority of the church, I can't speak for around the world, but in the United States of America, they have completely obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. And if you talk to the people you go to church with about this concept, they probably will have no idea what you're talking about. And whenever you sit in Sunday school or even sometimes in the sanctuary, what you will discover is not even an attempt to draw a proper distinction between law and gospel. That should bother you because I know it bothers me. Because I believe it leads to a dramatic misunderstanding of Scripture. 
So here we go. Again, uh, issues ETC coming out of the commercial break. Let's see where, where they're going to go. We're at thesis number seven. Let's, let's jump in. Here we go. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part seven of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Tell us a little bit about the background here that is in view for Walther because he has a history with a group called the Moravians, in particular a connection through the bishop who had led the immigration of Walther and his group some years before this, Martin Stefan. All right, the Moravians. If you don't know anything about them, we we probably, you know, well, well hopefully they're going to give us enough information, but you may want to do a little research on your own. The Moravians, you may want to look them up and uh, just see what you can discover. We'll see what they have to say, and we may make this a point of emphasis somewhere down the road. Who knows? But let's at least hear what they have to say. Yeah, the, the big guy for, for the Moravian group in Walther's view was the work of Zinzendorf, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who he was sort of like a, a, a man who forged, who would seek to forge a union between a Lutheran and a Calvinist approach, as with most, which usually ends up just being Calvinist. And that's indeed what the Moravians just basically end up being. And if you really want to sort of get a handle on that, the basic distinction between the two, think about Zoss's insight that for a Calvinist, the forgiveness of sins is the principal part of the gospel. But for a Lutheran, it is the sole content of the gospel. And he points out how these don't sound so very different, but they sure do. It's like Zasa used the analogy of a, a rail line that had just slight deviation in the one track. And he says, the further along you go, the further you see that having them not run exactly in parallel, they're going to diverge further and further. And that is certainly the case with the Moravians, within an emphasis upon the importance of sanctification in a way that sort of moved it to a priority. And that. Oh, this is so important. All right. Now, remember, Lutherans, if, if, if you don't know a lot about Lutheran theology, at times you will be like, well, wait a minute, that sounds. That sounds more Calvinistic. I think they're Calvinistic, but then there's other times they don't. There are other times like, what are you talking about? In fact, it was someone I met at the Lutheran church uh, right here in Abilene, Texas, our Savior Lutheran church, um, where I was a member and where, you know, I thought about becoming a Lutheran pastor and thought thought that was going to be my life. It was a Lutheran who first really introduced me I, as far as person to person to the doctrines of grace, right? But at the same time, the Lutheran Church was telling me that, hey, you know, we baptize babies, but they could lose their salvation, which then you're like, well, well, that even seems to destroy their whole, they just become so problematic. But, but it's this weird world. So I think it's important if the Moravians started really emphasizing sanctification, right? Sometimes the emphasis on sanctification becomes detrimental to a proper distinction between law and grace, between 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 the gospel, between between a, a correct understanding of justification, right? Between law and gospel, all right? It, it becomes a major problem. So let me try. Let, let's just. I don't know how they're going to carry this out, but let me just try to explain. All right. Here's what happens. When you talk about law and gospel, right? We know law is 
any scripture that says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Now, the, when you talk about a proper distinction between law and gospel, all law passages, any passage that says, do this, 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 you must do this, you must do whatever, however it's written, if it tells you you need to do something, those passages are law and the way they're understood is they are to condemn me and show me that I cannot they, they don't serve as a basis of proving anything because, because, because when I compare my life honestly to these things that say do this or do that, that's God's law and God's law demands perfection. So I know I'm always going to fall short. Where the gospel is like, no, here's what Christ did for you. Here's what Christ did for you. Well, the minute you start giving this proper distinction between law and gospel, and you emphasize the gospel is what Christ did for you, what Christ has done for you, that that you are saved not by what you do, can do, should do, but by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness, and that any passage that says, do this, do that, do this, in Christ, it is done because he did it for you. The minute you start emphasizing this proper distinction between law and gospel, or you could say law and grace, but law and gospel is the, 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 the terminology that we're utilizing. When you, whenever you start really emphasizing this, it's inevitable that someone's going to go, but, 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 wait, 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 you got to do this. 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 You can't tell me that you can't, that you can just believe in Jesus. No, you got to do something. And so they, they, they always try to play this little game. It's a game of semantics, right? They're saying, now look, we're not saying work save you. We're not saying you have to work to get saved, but what we're saying, if you are saved, you will do this. And if you don't, then you are not saved. Meaning, I have to do it in order to be saved. And not only that, they're trying to take my sanctification as proof of justification. The inevitable problem with that is we are not justified by an infused righteousness. See, if I was justified by an infused righteousness, you could then use my sanctification to prove my justification. But the whole Protestant Reformation was, no, 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 no. We are not justified by God infusing righteousness into us, but by imputing, accrediting to my account, his perfect righteousness by faith alone. So if you say, no, 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 your sanctification proves your justification, you destroy justification based off an imputed righteousness, and you make it by uh, about an infused righteousness, whether you want to admit that or not. That's what you're inevitably doing. What I would say is, I am justified by an imputed righteousness. You say, well, as a Christian, you should do this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't do those things, you're not saved. And I would be like, okay, thank you for giving me that test. In Christ, I do every single one of those things. In Christ, I love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. In Christ, I'm a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. In Christ, I love my neighbor as myself. In Christ, I am holy. In Christ, I do all of these things. And when I say in Christ, that means in my position, because in practice, I'm going to fall short. So whenever a group comes along and emphasizes sanctification, what they have a tendency to do when they start emphasizing it, they will do so at the expense of understanding justification based off an imputed righteousness. And, and they will almost make sanctification the test of your justification, which inevitably will destroy the proper distinction between law and gospel. Because what are they doing? How do you know you're saved? Not because of what God did for you, but by you keeping the law. Well, anyone who actually keeps, anyone who knows the law 
Well, no, they can't keep it. So they may sound very similar. Both sides may say, no, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. No, they may even claim that you're justified by an imputed righteousness. But because one starts emphasizing sanctification, 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 inevitably, they destroy the doctrine of justification. And you have to catch that. But when you start trying to talk to these people and you and you defend a justification based off an imputed righteousness, not an infused, and you emphasize that your standing is based on what Christ did, not on anything else, they will immediately accuse you of easy believism, cheap grace, and being an antinomian. And they will not have a meaningful conversation with you. Because they don't get it. You can repeat it a hundred different ways and they just look at you with this glazed look like they have no idea what they're talking about. They're like, all I know, if you're a Christian, you have to do something. And then they get so dogmatic about it. And, and sometimes what you want to say, well, ooh, if you think that, well, then let me really, let's take the, let's pull back the curtain and let's really look at your life. Let's look at your life in private. Let's look at your life in the middle of the night. Let's look at your phone, your iPad. Let's look at what's in your heart. Well, guess what? You're still a sinner because guess what? In practice, you're not a new creature. The old is not gone. Not all things have not become new in practice. Anyone claiming that is a liar. In Christ, in your position, you're a new creature. The old is gone. All is new. In practice, you still have a sinful nature. So if you start emphasizing sanctification, you destroy justification and it becomes a workspace system, even though you're claiming it's not. That's what I think the editor for Law and Gospel was thinking when he referred to this particular section as having the, the Moravians in Walter's sights when he dealt with this next confusion of Law and Gospel. Well, how does uh, Walter proceed here by way of Scripture to, you mentioned, repent and believe the gospel? Mm -hmm. That's hard to argue with. Where else does he go? Well, this next one that he's dealing with, again, the particularly Moravian approach, is sanctification of life is to be preached before justification, the preaching of forgiveness of sins. For justification by grace is nothing else than the forgiveness of sins. There it is right there. (laughs) Justification by grace is nothing else then the forgiveness of sins. I become righteous by appropriating the righteousness of Christ as my own. Then he gives you some scripture passages that are really very powerful. Psalm 130, verse 4, David sings, But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Think about that. The psalmist, he says, practically says to God, First thou must grant us remissions of sins. After that we will begin to reverence thee by walking in a new sanctified life. The term fear in this text does not signify merely awe in God's presence. It means the whole work of sanctification. There is forgiveness with thee. Because there is forgiveness, then your life can become truly God-fearing. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. That is, first comes the consolations of God, justification, granting pardon to the sinner, the remission of sins. After that, the psalmist expects to run the way of God's commandments. Now, 
this again, this is inevitably where everyone goes. E- even even many of those who do a proper distinction between law and gospel, everybody still wants to try to put, we will do these things. Now, look, we should do these things. We should desire those things. You just can't make what we should do, what we should desire, as somehow evidence or proof of salvation. If you want evidence for my salvation, Look to the cross, look to the finished work of Christ, look to his holiness, look to his obedience, because by faith, all of that is imputed to my, to me, to my account, to me. So therefore, that's what you look to for proof of salvation. Now, in theory, I completely agree. By, you know, because of God's mercies, because of his love, because of his forgiveness, because of all that he's done, because of the death of Christ for me. I should be hopefully change my mind correctly about sin and about God and then should desire that which is holy and righteous. But you know what? I'm going to fall short over and over and over and over and over again. Walter says, he means to say, because thou, O God, receivest me into thy grace. Therefore, because of this gracious act of thine, I conceive a love for thy commandments As long as my sins are still unforgiven, I cannot love thee and thy commandments. No, I hate thee. But as soon as I have them pardoned, I have obtained a new heart and gladly quit the world. For I find with thee something better than the world can give me. Okay, now this is the common language all Christians use, and I have a problem with it. Because nobody ever wants to stop and really break this down. When you say you get a new heart... So in salvation, if you say you get a new heart, clearly that's more than something. Then what you're claiming is you are in justification. Not only does Christ impute righteousness, he infuses into you a new heart. Now, if you get a new heart, there's logical questions that everyone should ask. Well, wait a minute. Does the old heart get removed or do I have a new heart now and an old heart? So God did infuse something into me. So the Catholics are right. And you're like, no, 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 Catholics aren't right. Well, they say that we're justified by an infused righteousness, that God infuses. So is he infusing a new heart into me? And so now I live out my Christian life. I have a new heart and I have an old heart. Now I have two hearts. How do we understand that? That's not two literal hearts. Do we have now two natures? Is that a better way to put it? The old nature and now the new nature, and they both exist inside of me at the same time. Okay, look, look. You, if you're not careful, you'll so talk about the new nature or the new heart, almost making it sound like the old is eradicated. Now, what some people say, well, now that we have a new heart, now we have some kind of power. So we can do this and we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. And you're like, oh, so can I be sinless? Well, no, you can't do that. But you can obey God, but you can't do it perfectly. You can love your neighbor, but you can't do it perfectly. You can love God, but not perfectly. So then it's like, okay, so I get a new nature, but it has all kinds of limitations because I can't be perfect. I can't do that. I can't be sinless. So then what does the new heart do? You say, well, it gives you new desires. Okay. I got no problem saying that now as a Christian, I should have new desires. I got no but the old desires are still there as well. So do we have two natures? Now if we do, we have to emphasize we have two natures. We have to emphasize that and we have to emphasize that the new nature will not get you to sinlessness, will not get you to holiness, will not get you anywhere close to perfection. 
So then, then you have to go, okay, I have this, but there's limitations to what it can and can't do. That's a more accurate representation about how it's typically preaches. Now that you're a Christian, you have a new heart. You can do it. But we know we can't because we're still going to fall short. All right, let, let's see where he goes with this. He points to the same sort of ordering that you see then in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Walter notes, so here's the real sequence. The first requisite is to obtain wisdom, that is knowledge of the way of salvation. That's the primary step. Next comes righteousness, which we obtain by faith. Not until this has been attained comes sanctification. I must first know that God has forgiven my sins, has cast them into the depth of the sea before he affords me real joy to lead a sanctified life. Before that, it was a grievous burden to me. I I completely reject this approach to the text. He's approaching this text as giving us a sequence or an order. So here's what happens. We get wisdom, then we get a imputed righteousness, then this leads to now me living out a practical sanctification and redemption. That is not what that verse is saying. That is an obli- that is an obliteration. I don't know I, I don't know what that is. That that is an abomination. It's an obliteration of the text. It's an it's uh, it's eisegesis. He's reading something into the text. Let's make it very clear, all right? The entire context here is this. All right. This is very important. All right. I'm going to go back to verse 26 so that you can see. I'm going to go back to verse 25. I'm going to put this in context. This is the whole problem with ripping things out of context. All right. Here we go. First Corinthians 1 25, because the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For you see your calling brethren, not that not how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, things which are not to bring not things that to not things that are. So he establishes this entire idea. God, when he chooses us, he chooses the weak, the broken, the despised, the foolish, because that's what we are as sinners. We are broken. We are weak. We are despised. We are, we, we are incapable. Now look at what happens. And he does this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The way God works this is that you'll never be able to glory in his presence because it's all going to be on him. And now look what happens. Verse 30. But of whom are ye? Okay, so those who are called, those whom God has chosen, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is my position. In Christ Jesus, look what happens. Remember, I'm foolish, but guess what? In Christ, I have wisdom. Christ is my wisdom. This is my positional standing. In my position, I have all the wisdom of Christ, in a sense, imputed to me. So I stand as wise. He is my righteousness. This is clearly my positional standing. There's nothing to do with my practical standing. In Christ, I am perfectly righteous because his righteousness is imputed to me. I stand before God as perfect, holy, obedient, and right. And then look at this. And my sanctification. 
This is my positional sanctification. This has nothing to do with the practical sanctification. We talked about this in our study on sanctification, right? Our series set apart. I am set apart. I am sanctified perfectly in Christ Jesus. I, I am, I've been set apart from everything that I am, everything that I do. I've been put in Christ and then I stand before God perfectly separated, perfectly sanctified. And he is my redemption. This is not some, you do this first, then you get this. No, I have all of those things, not based on anything I will ever do, but based on what I am in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus by faith alone. I'm all of the, Christ is all of those things for me. He is my wisdom. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. And then look at the next verse. The, because, and we know this has nothing to do with what we do. Verse, next verse. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. See, I can't glory because it has nothing to do with what I'm doing. It has nothing to do with my sanctification being lived out in a practical way. This is all of my positional reality in Christ Jesus. I do not know how you could take this verse and so obliterate the actual meaning of it, but that's what I feel he just did there because he turns it into, oh, see, you get this, you get this, then, then you get to start living out your Christian life and sanctification in some practical way, which supposedly, I guess, proves the existence of the others. That is an undermining of a proper distinction between law and gospel. At first, I was angry with God. I hated him for demanding so many things of me. I should have liked to cast him off of his throne. I mused in my heart, it would be better for me if there were no God. But when I had been pardoned and justified, I delighted not only in the gospel, I also came to delight in the law. Beautiful. And he then turns to John fifteen five, which just states it so very clearly. The Lord says to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. The Savior desires that we be grafted in him, like branches are grafted into a vine. It does not mean to be physically incorporated into him, but that we believe in him with our whole heart, put our confidence and trust in him, and embrace him wholly with the arms of faith, so that we live only in him, our Jesus, who rescued us, and saved us. When this takes place, we will bear fruit. The Savior then shows that we must be justified before we can lead a sanctified life. If we become loose or severed branches, we wither, we die, we produce no fruit. He also points to Acts 15, verse 9, where Peter at the Great Council in Jerusalem says, he put no difference between us and them, between the Jews and the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. So after having been justified by faith, I'm also purified, renewed, and sanctified by the same faith. Again, is that a positional reality or a practical reality. If it's a practical reality, if you keep going down this path, you're going to have to basically demand that all Christians are perfect, but we are not. We are so far from it. We fall short in thought, in word, in deed, in desire, in feeling, emotion, action, you name it. And what happens when you confuse 
justification and sanctification, you end up really causing a crisis of conscience for your people because it's only if you keep justification straight and first that then you can understand how you can be certain that you've been received into the grace of God. And that's the thing that is going to enable you then to lead that life, that new life with joy. Does that make sense? I mean, to me, this is one of the most fundamental assertions in this entire chapter. Don't screw up the order. Uh, In other words, put it this way. God does not say to you, if you get your act together, I will give you my love and forgiveness. Rather, think about the woman caught in the very act of adultery. What does Jesus do with her? He says, where are those who condemned you? Is there no one left? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. There's the gospel, pure and simple. Now, go and sin no more. You see, he didn't say, if you go and sin no more, I won't condemn you either. He first gave her the gift of his forgiveness, and then he sent her out to live a life of sanctification with that promise. I do agree that we are sent out to live a life of sanctification, but you can't look to that sanctification to prove the justification because the justification is by faith. It's not by an infused righteousness. We should pursue that. But you know what? You can tell, you can tell me every day, go and sin no more. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sin in some way, shape, or form. That's why my hope has to be an imputed righteousness and my positional standing, because of my practical standing, I continue to sin. And you know what? She, When she got up and left, she still sinned, (laughs) because we all do. He has a third perversion, and that is, first law, then gospel occurs when... Faith is preached first and repentance next. He says this was done by the antinomians and is still done by the Hernhutters of our time, another rather obscure historical reference. I think there are some still in Canada or in the maybe North Dakota, something like that. There are Hernhutters around still. But yeah, the thought is you can't actually really repent until you've come to believe. And he says this is such a foolish direction. How can faith enter a heart that hasn't been crushed? How can a person feel hungry and thirsty when he loathes the food that sets before him? No. You want to believe in Christ, you have to become sick. Christ is a physician only for the sick. He came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, you have to become lost and condemned sinner before you find that you have a good shepherd. His passages on this are beautiful. He turns again to Acts. He's dwelling a lot in Acts. Acts 2.38, at the conclusion of Peter's Pentecostal sermon, it's recorded, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said in response to the question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He tells them, repent, then the remission of sins. Faith comes after repentance. Under the head also, Walter says, belongs the passage that we already looked at in Acts 20, 21. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, just keeping that order straight is very important. You don't preach faith, then come around to preaching 
forgiveness. The order is that you have to preach the forgiveness of sins after the law has crushed. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We are in part seven of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. There's a fourth and final perversion that Walther mentions, and that's when good works are preached first, then grace. We'll get into that next. And that brings us to the conclusion of our episode. I will say this. Now, this is, once again, the this is a major theological battle. It's been a major theological battle throughout the history of Christianity. When, when, whenever the gospel, and a lot of people try to say, well, it's an invitation. It's not really a command. But when, when we're told repent and believe, is that a command? Some say it's an invitation. Well, if it's an invitation, is it something I do? Do I do the repenting and do I do the believing? If I'm doing the repenting and I'm doing the believing, then am I not saved by works? And people say, no, 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 no. You're just accepting the invitation, but I'm doing something, right? Am I not saved by what? He does. So from a Calvinistic perspective, it's not complicated, right? God commands us to repent and believe. We cannot. God must grant the repentance, the change of mind, and he must grant the, the faith. He has to give us the faith and the repentance. If he does not grant us the change of mind, then we will not believe. He changes our mind about sin and about God, and then he gives us the faith to believe. We believe that's all a work of God, making maintaining that salvation is truly not a work of man. It's truly a work of grace. It is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for his glory alone. That's the way we understand it. Now, if you don't believe that, what those who say, no, we do the repenting, we do the believing, Leaving. However, it's not a work because because it's just us accepting it. So it's not we're not doing. Well, I mean we're accepting it, but it's not. They will try to say it's not a work, and this becomes a problem. So is it a work or is it not a work? Well, they're trying to distinguish law and gospel here. So they they don't want repentance and belief to be a law. So they're like that's not a law. See, but it's telling you to do something. So by definition, it is a law. But they're like no no, it's just an invitation. But you have to do it. Well, if I'm the one doing it, see, then that's something I can glory in, right? Because if I look at someone across the street and go, well, they they didn't repent, they didn't believe, but I did. Well, why did I do it? He said, well, because God worked in you. Well, then he didn't work in him. Now you're kind of proving Calvinism. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, God works in everyone, but you answered the call. Well, if I answered the call, why did I answer the call? I was more sensitive. I was smarter. I was more clever. In some ways, I've got something to glory in. But if I realize God commands me to repent and believe, however, I cannot do that. But God in his mercy and his grace grants repentance and faith to those whom he has chosen before the foundations of the world. Now, I know other people say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. I understand that. And we can, you could argue it's not fair that he created man knowing that man was going to go to hell in the first place. I mean, we could have that discussion. No matter how you look at it, you're going to find yourself having problems. But it's either you do have something to glory in because you repented and you believe because you believe that's something you did. Or it's not something you can take credit for. That, that, that is a very important part of this discussion. And th- because Lutheranism is not Calvinism, but it may not be way over here like your typical decisionism, 
right? It kind of finds itself in this weird middle. And when it gets to some of this, it kind of gets a little convoluted because you're like, well, wait a minute. Those are law passages. And they're all like, no, no, no. They're invitation passages that tells me to do something. Therefore, it's a law passage. I think they're law passages. And the reality is Christ has to grant me the repentance. And and I'm emphasizing a change of mind and then grants me the faith to believe. All right. There we go. There's much more we could review there, but we'll just stop right there. You can email me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for this relatively quick episode. Uh, Yeah, but I, I have to go now. So thank you for listening. Everyone have a great day. If you have any questions, email me. And as always, thank you for your support. You can help us out in numerous ways. You can, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please post a, give us a five-star, you know, uh, review, write a review, give us five-star rating. We really appreciate that. You can go to theologycentral.net. You can post a review there. We greatly appreciate that. If you're using the Sermons 2.0 app or the Sermon Audio website, you can leave a nice comment. I mean, we, you know, we would appreciate that. Uh, and of course, if you ever want to support us in any way, shape, or form using the Church One app or the Sermons 2.0 app, if you look up Theology Central, you can hit the Give tab. Or if you go to theologycentral.net, you can hit the Donate tab. All finance, all money goes directly to Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas. All right. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.